Hi, and welcome to uh, this week's episode of Gomology. It's me, Nick. Um, before we get started with the episode where I talk to Alec Farmer of Track, who make excellent backpacks in Glasgow, I just wanted to ask a small favour of you. If you enjoy Gomology, please share it with your friends, maybe on your social media. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot because I just love reaching new listeners. So without further ado, this week's episode. Enjoy. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Garmology, the podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is not strictly within clothes, but is someone I have been following for a very, very long time and also using the products from for a very, very long time. So um, without further ado, Alec, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Nick. Uh, I'm Alec, and I am the founder of Track Bags based in Glasgow. Should we just start by explaining a bit about what Track Bags is about, and then we'll go into, well, your history within it? Absolutely. So at Track, we manufacture really high-quality waxed canvas luggage. Uh, we manufacture it here in, in Glasgow, in the UK, um, using British-made materials. And um, I guess we design products really for people who probably live in the city, uh, but love to go outdoors. So we try and design products that work really well going to the office, going to meetings. But if you want to go hill walking at the weekend or camping or um, out anywhere outdoors, um, th then the bags are really well suited for that as well. Obviously, being based in Glasgow, um, making sure that everything is waterproof is quite important. So uh, that gives us quite a nice quite a nice angle with, with everything that we sell. Now, your own um, history within the company has, has been about, what, 10, 11, 12 years 13 now? 13 years this August. And, I mean, can we go right back to the start? What were you doing at the time? How did you come to start it? Absolutely. I moved to Glasgow from Derbyshire, um, and I moved up here to, to study at the Glasgow School of Art. I did a course called Visual Communication, which really... Uh, primarily was graphic design. And um, while I was there, I mean, I loved my course, but I just did a lot of stuff on computers and I really wanted to make things with my hands. I was friends with a, a lot of product design students and so I was around people who were making things. And really that's what I, I wanted to do. Um, so one summer, my messenger bag broke. This was in at the peak of sort of uh, fixed gear bikes being really cool and everyone wanting to look like a bike messenger. And I thought, uh, you know, I can't afford a new one and maybe I can make one for myself. So I started uh, try, trying to make one uh, and failed quite miserably. Um, and probably over the course of about six months made 200 bags in my flat, mostly using materials that uh, my friends and I had found on the streets of Glasgow for free. So old advertising banners or sofas or suitcases or whatever we could get our hands on really and um yeah yeah just started making bags and and they were very different from what we make now very very different um but in the end uh, we had far too many bags and um, a friend of mine had a, a market stall and said hey you should come down one weekend and, and sell them down here so um 
yeah, so so in a very short space of time, ended up taking on this market stall um, and trying to sell the, the bags that I'd made. And, and that was really when Track was born, albeit under a very different guise. I'm really curious now. You said you made about 200 bags. At which point in this process did you see that it was actually a usable bag, given that the first one wasn't? Well, it depends how you define usable. I mean, I guess the first one arguably you know, <laughs> had a compartment, but it wasn't very comfy and it didn't have all the features that I wanted. And it certainly wasn't very neat. It was made from a plumber's phone number on a big bit of uh, yellow tarpaulin. Um, but, you know, it was a start. And I think that's always the way, isn't it? It's sort of the first step is often the hardest. So I wasn't in any way thinking about starting a business. It was really just doing something for myself. Um, and the more I got into it, the more I really enjoyed the process. I really enjoyed the process of turning sort of 2D material into uh, 3D form. And I got really obsessed with, you know, pockets and straps and, uh, you know, how I wanted it to work while I was on my bike. Um, but yeah, I think I think at some point I started chatting to the local bike couriers and they gave me loads of advice, uh, loads of insights into how they used bags and, you know, slowly began to realise that I had a few designs that, that, you know, were nice and were simple and, and that might work. Um, and that's really what ended up going into that very first market stall or shop. <laughs> I'm still thinking about those 200 bags and I don't know at what point I mean did you have any sort of plan and were you just obsessively making just obsessively ones? I mean sometimes it would be that basically we, we used to go out at the weekends on our bikes and we used to cycle around all the skips and all the like industrial estates and things like that and just find whatever whatever we could find really and sometimes you would just get a piece of tarpaulin with a print on it or something and thought, oh, this is really cool. I should make something with this. So sometimes you just got carried away by the material. Sometimes just trying out a new feature or something that hadn't quite worked on, on the last bag. But, but also really learning to sew. Um, my mum had taught me to sew when I was a, a child, um, but I would never really even now say that I'm a machinist of any sort. Um, so I was just trying it out at the time and, and doing it with a crappy domestic sewing machine that probably couldn't handle the kind of materials I was trying to push through it. Um, but, you know, you have to start somewhere. And it was it was very lo-fi when, when we ended up getting uh, getting the market stall, realized that we needed a brand name and, a, and a, you know labels and things like that and had no money. You know, was living on ramen noodles and baked beans at the time. Um, and so I, I bought, do you remember the, the name labels that your mum used to sew into your school uniform or, or whatever? Oh, yeah. I, I basically bought those with track on them, uh, got about 500 for 15 quid and used those because, because it was not really a, meant to be a business. It was sort of a bit of fun and, and they did the job at the time. Um, and then, and then when we, when we had the shop, the other thing that we sort of used to offer I say we, it was sort of a friend of mine at the time. We, we used to do this stuff together. And um, a, a friend, basically at the shop, we, we would say to people, if you bring us fabric, we'll turn your fabric into a bag 
and we'll keep any excess and that's kind of like our payment for for the bag i guess so we used to start getting sort of all sorts of weird and wonderful materials being bought down by customers the most notable being uh the kevlar sail from a 60-foot racing yacht that had that had been damaged and was no longer suitable for sailing so this guy bought this huge bit of fabric down um and 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 donated it we turned it into a duffel bag for him um and tried to use the rest of this fabric but it, it was so big that we we had to take it to the park roll it out on the grass clean it cut it into pieces that would actually fit into our living room and um and go from there really so some wild times at the very beginning it sounds like the best of times really that much enthusiasm and creativity going on yeah absolutely and lots of lots of awful things as well like we had a found this absolutely horrific purple uh, purple leather miniskirt three words that should never be used in the same sentence um and you know made some some pouches and things and the pouches were quite nice but i mean thank god that 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 skirt doesn't exist anymore um, I, I was looking at your LinkedIn earlier, and, and this wasn't your first sort of creative effort, because I think it must have been a bit earlier that you got into micro houses. Yeah, so it was all almost within the same year. So when I was in my third year, um, as I said, I did a course at university called Visual Communication, and I chose it because it was probably the most varied design course that I could find at the time. It, it allowed me to do a little bit of everything. And the beauty of it really was that no one could really tell me what visual communication meant, which I used as a sort of free license to do whatever I wanted, as long as I could come up with some justification. And um, I was really fascinated by a movement in the 60s called um, uh, the urban nomads. And interestingly, it was quite a similar time to the time I was in, in sort of 2009, 2010, where basically house prices have been going up students uh you know and young people couldn't afford to to rent flats or, or buy homes and so they were coming up with these crazy nomadic houses like flat pack houses or or even flat pack furniture almost that that you could build inside a room to create turn one room into into multiple spaces a really interesting movement and and um you know, rooted at the same time as the whole earth catalogue and a lot of sort of other quite seminal uh, pieces within like hippie culture and things like that. And I got fascinated by this guy called Ken Isaacs, who'd made an eight foot micro house. So it was essentially an eight foot cube. It looks a bit like a, a lunar landing pod. It sort of sits on these legs and I was fascinated by it. And so I decided to, to, to do some research. I would recreate this micro house that he'd built back in sort of the early 60s and live in it uh, for a period of time um, which was arguably a mistake he lived in quite a warm dry part <laughs> of America I lived in a very cold wet part of Scotland um, the design that he created was in no way watertight however hard you tried and um, so I built this thing and I managed to, to secure a space on a like a public garden like a sort of you know a bunch of people would go down and, and plant veg at the weekends and i managed to convince them to let me build this thing in the corner of their uh, of their garden 
and I, I tried to live in it for, I think, about six months. Well, I was meant to move on to this piece of land in June. I ended up getting the permission in uh, late October. I moved on to the site. It then immediately started to snow. Uh, and so it was quite a difficult period of time. I really enjoyed it. It was, I mean, some stories to tell, and it was absolutely um, fascinating experience. But I must admit, I did spend a lot of time um, going around to friends' houses for dinner and warmth um, because it was not a particularly nice place to be hanging out. Um, and and I, I would go to bed and wake up in the morning with, you know, ice on the inside of the of the cabin and. Uh, it was quite bleak at times, uh, but also very fun. <laughs> I imagine that's taught you a bit about um, packaging and uh, the sort of amount of stuff you can have and make room for it, which might have come in handy when making luggage. Yeah, I think so. I think I've always been quite interested in, in sort of minimalism. I, not to say that I am necessarily a minimalist, but I, I like the idea of sort of understanding how little you can manage with. And I think I love traveling for that reason, because you sort of have to pack so that everything you need is is in one, in one bag. Um, and then I like to organize everything in there so that everything's sort of, you know, grouped into separate pouches and, and different types of organization. So, yeah, so I guess that type of living really appeals, the kind of tiny house movement that, that's really taken off. Um, it, it's a fascinating study in, in less. And I think when you when you have less, everything that you have becomes a lot more important. And so you, re you really need it to function well. You need it to be beautiful. You need it to be easy to use. Um, and so it really makes you pay attention to the things that you own. And I think that that's actually something that we could all apply to our lives is um, just buying buying better things um, if you can. That doesn't necessarily mean more expensive things. It's just the right thing for the job. And I, I enjoy I enjoy thinking about that. I just got thinking that if, if you made a list of everything you actually used during a day... I'm sure for most people that list wouldn't actually be very long. But then we get so connected, uh, obsessed, in love with all our stuff that we sort of have loads of stuff anyway, even though we don't actually interact with it in a meaningful way. Yeah, we like newness. Um, yeah, we, we like newness and we like... I, th I think there's some comfort in, in things, uh, I must admit. But I think there's also a bit of a tendency where we, we buy things that we use very occasionally. Um, and so we end up buying things that, yes, you need for this holiday or you need for that trip or you need to repair something in your house. But then you never really use again and it ends up sort of gathering dust on a shelf. And, um, you know, that can be quite problematic. And, and there are things, I guess, beginning to happen, um, like tool, you know, tool co-ops where you can rent tools uh, rather than owning a drill, you rent one and, and things like that. And I think that's a great way to go um, because it is it is hard to have less, I, I think. Um, as, as much as I enjoy the idea, I go through sort of periodic phases of trying to clear everything out and then I just end up getting it all back again somehow um without really noticing and i think that's something we're all perhaps guilty of it, it, it it's hard to keep track isn't it was, was that a pun <laughs> it, 
it wasn't meant to be a pun, but yes, I, I see I see the issue here. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's okay. Um, so if we look back to uh, you were doing well on the market shop, uh, you'd bought labels with your brand name on, uh, you were starting to uh, get rid of some of the 200 samples you'd made up. <laughs> What what made you see that this could actually be a business? Well, I think fundamentally, I enjoyed it. And um, with the market stall, we began to get this sort of very, very small, but very engaged group of customers, people who seemed to really enjoy what we were doing um, and were, were very interested in how we were doing it and why we were doing it and the things we were making. And I guess when when it came to graduate a year later, I sort of realized I had an opportunity. You know, um, it's very hard to be in a full time salaried job and then say, hey, I'm going to start a business and sort of sacrifice your salary to go and try something that that could well fail. Um, Whereas I was in a position where I was a student and quite used to living on a student's budget. and I thought, well, actually, this is maybe a good opportunity because I've really got nothing to lose. Um, so after graduating, I thought, you know, I think there might be some legs in this. There was very few people at the time were really making making that kind of product in the UK. Um, the bag industry, you know, has always been quite broad, but th- there were a lot less small makers then than there are now. Um And I thought, you know, maybe I can do something here. So I sort of went back to the drawing board and said, if I'm going to do this, um, I want to do it properly. Um, And that means I probably shouldn't be making the bags because fundamentally uh, I am not good enough to do that. Um, So I I looked for people who were much, much better at sewing than I was. Ended up finding a guy who used to be a sail maker and... um, so he was used to working with with really heavy fabrics and he understood seam tension and, and the strength of a stitch and all of those kind of things. And um, yeah, I, I basically asked him to start making the product on my behalf, started experimenting with, with different mater- materials. Um, the first, in, in fact, being a, a really horrific synthetic material, uh, which is used in a lot of uh, uh, bags nowadays called Cordura. Um, and, you know, nothing wrong with the material, but it's very synthetic and quite sort of boring and standard. Um, and I started making some bags with that initially, um, sort of overnight because, uh, because this chap was making them on, on my behalf, the quality, uh, went up very, very quickly. And I began to realize that actually that the materials were be- beginning to let down the quality of the manufacturer. Um, so I ended up looking for, for a sort of whole new palette of materials. Um, and I guess I, I try to think of the best way to explain it, but I think most people's, I think most people at this point would probably have started looking overseas and finding factories that could produce volume and, and things like that. But I did not have enough money to meet those kind of minimums. And, and I, I'm a bit of a control freak. So I was always worried about sending things overseas to get them made, not being able to see what was going on. And so I sort of realized that I really enjoyed having someone 
just down the road who I could go and visit his little workshop and I could um, chat to and we could sketch out design ideas. Really loved having that facility on my doorstep. And I, as I was looking for a new palette of materials, I, I thought, well, if I'm manufacturing it here, what if all the materials were made here as well? And I was sort of sort of trying to support the broader marketing, uh, sort of manufacturing picture here in the UK um, by, by sort of manufacturing here and also buying from other manufacturers. So, so that's what I did really. Um, sort of, and that took me a long time finding those suppliers um, because at the time, especially manufacturers' websites were not very good. Didn't, it was hard to tell what people made. It was hard to find the, the best of the best um, through a Google search. So I spent a long time trying to find different factories that could, could make uh, the materials and the hardware that I needed. But, but thankfully, ended up with a, an incredible set of, of suppliers here in the UK. Because there is a lot of stuff made in the UK, but as you said, hard to find. And I suppose also for luggage, you do have quite specific ideas of what you're after. You're not looking for fine tweeds or anything like that. You do need the rugged canvas fabric. Absolutely. I mean, to some degree, um, what track has become was initially defined by what was available here in the UK. We, we you know, we, we do manufacture a lot, but it can be quite niche um, to specific industries or, or sort of things that were set up 150 years ago and have, have carried, carried on running ever since. Um, so it was quite interesting. I mean, yes, as you say, um, there are lots of fantastic wool manufacturers um, here here in the UK, and particularly in Scotland. People ask tweed, and and you can make bags with that with those things. But I was looking for a palette that would sort of become the basis of um, the work that we created, and I ended up finding an incredible wax canvas manufacturer here in Scotland, um, up in Dundee. And the more I found out, the more I thought this is this is perfect. Um, wax canvas is a, is a very strong, uh, durable fabric. It can be reproofed time and time again, as you would know if you've ever had a barber jacket or anything like that. So you can keep it waterproof um, for a long time, which means it's going to be usable for a long time. But also, as I dug into it, I realized that, that wax cotton is, in fact, a, a Scottish invention. Um, Scottish fishermen in, in the sort of 1700s would worked out basically that they could make their boats sail faster by oiling the canvas sails. So they would oil the sail and because it was oiled, it would catch more wind because it caught more wind, it sailed faster and because it sailed faster, they caught more fish. Um, so it was a, kind of an amazing uh, bit of early technology in a way. And then when the sails broke, they would cut them up and turn them into fishermen smocks and oil skins and things that they could wear. So this is sort of the backstory. And I thought, well, this is great because we're, we're dealing with a British made product. It's been made here for 150 years in the same place. These guys know exactly what they're doing. And it's got this amazing, beautiful story behind it that's very much rooted in Scotland, um, which is, of course, where Track was born. And, and Track is a Scottish uh, company. Uh, we take a lot of pride in that. Um, so it just felt perfect, that a narrative and a fabric that just went really well together. 
I don't want to sort of jump in and sort of destroy your narrative there, but the Vikings were onto that bit a bit before the guys in Dundee oh. <laughs> about oiling your ah, sails. Okay, well, well, I am incorrect. <laughs> but uh, I mean, also, I, th- I think uh, I think New Zealand was well into oil skin before it was exported to England. But then it this just just goes to show that. Um, I mean, where does stuff actually get invented? Because uh, whoever tells the story claims claims it. Yeah, they often say that some things um, often get invented at different parts of the world at the same time because everyone has the same brainwave. I think they say that about the telephone, don't they? That there's mm. some discussion about who actually invented the telephone because the technology just was there at the right moment and two different people sort of made the connection. Yeah. Well, there was so so little communication back then that if you managed to steal an idea from somewhere else and sort of claim it around the same time, well, you know, it might exactly. seem plausible. I don't know. Waxed cotton from Dundee, certainly uh, an excellent um, an excellent idea. Harley Stevenson's. I mean, they make uh, they make for so many people now. They're all over they really the place. They really do. Yeah. Um, really, one of I think there's only two waxed cotton makers in. That's very Britain true. Now. So it's Harley Stevenson and yes. British Millerain. Really, one of the original technical fabrics, if we look at it. Absolutely, and I, you know, I think um, I think it's a, a fabric that is going to remain quite relevant because it's sort of a natural fibre and um, can be looked after for so long. I mean, I, I don't know if you you know this, but you know, if you compare it with a synthetic fabric, for example. The big problem with synthetics is that you have a woven fabric, and, and then normally the waterproofing is uh, is done using a membrane that is applied to the, to this woven fabric. And the trouble with that is that o- over time, age, sunlight, all of these things degrade that membrane and it ends up peeling away and delaminating. And once it delaminates, it really nothing you can do about it. You can't repair it very easily. Um, and therefore, these things start to leak. Um, so by contrast, you know, wax canvas is waterproof because of the wax impregnation and that can be topped up um, really indefinitely. So it, it is an amazing, uh, an amazing material. I came across that a few years ago when I was wondering about whether Gore-Tex jackets were vintage ones, more environmentally friendly than new ones. And as it turned out, the new one was actually better as the old one was degrading so much faster that that was shedding more microplastics than the new one. I mean, neither of them was any sort of good in environmental stakes at all, regardless, but the old ones were definitely worse. The big problem that a a lot of companies like Gore-Tex have is that um, chemicals that they used in in the fabrics 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, are now... Um, banned, which means that they are limited in how they can recycle old old Gore-Tex products uh, because they're not allowed to, to reintroduce those chemicals into new products. So they have this sort of issue there where, where even the things they've made, even if they are in good condition or could be recycled, are, are not allowed to be recycled as far as I'm aware. Um, which obviously then you know puts an even bigger time limit on how long those fabrics are usable for. So you came to the point where you had the fabric. Now, I, I know you had a, a really good idea for graphic design very early on with the the stainless steel clasps on the 
on the backs. Yes. How did that come about? Well, again, um, I guess I guess the hardware on bags was actually the thing that I found hardest to source. Um, the majority of hardware that's made for bags and things like that is made of plastic. And we don't really have um, an industry for that here, certainly not an industry that's uh, cost effective. So I started thinking, OK, well, what industries do we have? You know, what kind of materials can we use? And ended up finding an amazing company in Wales who, who, who make a lot of products for marine applications like sailing boats and things like that um, and safety hardware. And they work a lot with stainless steel, um, which which they have the capability to do all sorts of things with. And I was quite a pe- sort of interested in this because obviously, you know, if a buckle, if a plastic buckle breaks, there is not much you can do. Um, and on a backpack, if your buckle breaks, really often the bag becomes unusable or at least not not sort of working perfectly. Mm. And so stainless steel seemed like this great opportunity. And, and we, we started getting these buckles made that's called a buckle and slide. And um, it's a very old school, uh, traditional type of buckle, but two flat pieces of stainless steel um that are, that are cut in such a way that one slots through the other and allows you then to use it as a buckle and also an adjuster and they're just really lovely simple pieces of kit um quite unusual um a little bit different um and insanely strong i mean they will last forever i mean we get bags back now that are 10 years old and have had these buckles uh, fixed and you could cut them off and put them on a new bag and, and no one would ever know because they're just in absolutely tip-top shape um so yeah fantastic a uh, fantastic material with fantastic longevity the only downside was that the, because the buckles are slightly unusual a lot of people really struggled to work out how they worked so we used to find that the first interaction with the bag uh, from a new customer was often challenging because they they were sort of figuring out the buckle still. And it took a little bit of time to really understand it. And once you get it, it makes total sense. They're really easy to use. They work really well. But it it was a little bit of a learning curve. And actually, since then, we've, we've changed that buckle to a slightly different style. Uh, but I still have a, a lot of uh, a lot of bags with those buckles and, and love them. They're made for a very recognisable uh detail i remember i was standing in uh, the riverton hide shop in uh, in london it must have been 2014 maybe and i had my arcade pack on my back and this guy comes over to me and says is that a tracker you're wearing and i was like yes <laughs> completely stunned because you weren't a well-known no, brand at the time no, absolutely not and i think yeah it, it was one of those things that that allowed you to spot it from a mile away and say you know that's probably a track bag because you don't see those buckles very often hmm. now i mentioned the name of the pack i had the archaic because now was it when i was visiting the hebrides i i discovered where that where you'd pick the name from lock archaic because i think you've been using sort of scottish mountains as model names yeah, we use we use Scottish place names, lock names, mountains. Um, I think, you know, it's slightly strange. Obviously, very clearly, I am English, um, but I've lived up here for a long time, and I think I, I fell in love with Scotland as soon as I moved here. And certainly, 
having lived here for a long time, have found it to be an incredible place full of amazing people who've all been incredibly supportive about about what we're doing here at Track. Um, and so I guess everything that we do is really a bit of a homage to, to Scotland. And I just think there are some fantastic words, fantastic place names, um, slightly unusual, um, uh, and they just they just have some character to them. So I think in, in, in the case of the Arcade, there's a great story about a sort of lost treasure that's apparently buried on the shores of Loch Arcade. Um, and that just just caught my caught my interest. Um, but yes, we, we, we sort of try and use place names uh, for all of the bags. And sometimes there's a reason and sometimes it just sounds right. And sometimes it's slightly uh, onomatopoeic. Um, we, we make some packing cubes, for example, that are called the Folden packing cubes. And Folden is a, a place in Scotland uh, that kind of sounds like folding. So kind of works. <laughs> <laughs> yes puns that reminds me uh of um, the episode i did with jamie of banton frameworks and his uh, evolution story of banton frameworks is, is kind of like yours as well because they started out making frames out of basically whatever they could find that would be usable in the same way that you were cycling around skips <laughs> yeah i know jamie well and i think um, i think it would probably be fair to say that both of us uh started businesses uh in a similar line you know manufacturing here in scotland um probably without knowing very much about what we were doing at the time so both of us have sort of uh, done a lot of learning um over you know over, over the years and and thankfully we met um quite quite a few years ago and so we're you know we do sh we we chat to each other regularly and, and share um insights and ideas and and things like that um because you know it's just great to find someone who gets what you're talking about um when you're in this kind of industry because uh, there aren't many of us now given that you started track without being a sort of seasoned industry veteran with lots of experience and knowing all the ways to actually do stuff. Do you think it was an advantage coming from a more amateur perspective and having to think out everything, maybe coming up with quite different solutions? Um, I think it has its advantages. I don't know. I think it's hard to say because I only really know one, one way of doing it. But I mean, I, I would certainly say at the time I thought, how hard could it be? And the answer is really, really hard. Um, I was quite naive at the time, I think, to be thinking like that. Um, and, and yes, we, we have had to work it out as we've, we've gone. And, you know, I have a relatively young team of people around me. Um, and so by and large, we all, you know, uh, are looking at this with, with fresh eyes to some degree. I think on the one hand, it allows us to control every part of the process in exactly the way that we want. Um, but to do that, we've had to do a lot of experimentation and trying different techniques and trying different things. And, you know, probably losing a lot of time and, and spending a lot of money that arguably we didn't need to spend if we'd had more experience. Um, on, on the flip side, it has given us a, a fresh perspective and we have been able to do things differently because we haven't been sort of constrained by uh, sort of industry norms in inverted commas. Um, I'm sure if we invited, uh, you know, the production manager from Barber to our workshop, um, they might have a thing or two to say about how we do things. 
but it works for us and it works for our staff and it works for our customers. Um, and I guess that's all that matters, isn't it, really? So you had found the fabric you wanted and you had a guy, a sale maker, making packs for you. What was the sort of next step? Well, I guess sort of long story short was that in the end, this sale maker um, was making so many bags for us that um, he, he wasn't really doing any of his, his other work anymore. And so we sort of made a deal uh, and, and he ended up coming to work for me. We opened a, a, a tiny, tiny workshop that had uh, first two sewing machines in it. Um, and, you know, track became more of a sort of full-time endeavor. Um, and then from there, really, it became about, about scaling that up. And so over the years, we've scaled quite slowly and quite organically primarily because we've you know we've been doing a lot of learning along the way um yes and, and so we slowly be began to scale up so uh it, probably in 2015 we ended up moving to a much bigger workshop um at the time i think there might have been six of us um and, and we continued scaling from from a bigger workshop and we had we had more space and more materials and, and more products available and we just slowly but surely be began to grow as our customers grew as as our range of products developed and as word got out i guess and at no point did you think oh we better move production to a low-cost country bring in investors scale up massively well um <laughs> yeah i mean there, there are hard times when certainly it crosses my mind that it might be easier to get them made somewhere else. Um, but I don't think that's really what we're about. That is not what, what um, sort of the core of track is. And I think manufacturing here, it, it, it's hard, but it's very, very rewarding um, to, to do. And I think people really appreciate it. So that's very much part of our DNA. Um, but but yes, I mean there there have been times when when certainly um, it, it's tempting uh, to look elsewhere. It's quite strange because I see some companies like yourself where the fact that you're making them in a workshop in Glasgow is a major major selling point, and you realise your customers appreciate this. Whilst you have any number of companies that decide that oh no, we can make somewhere else. Uh, our customers don't give a shit uh, and they'll be quite happy to pay the same for it. C can both those uh, ideas be true? I think it's a very complicated question. Um, I would never say that, you know, British made is the only way. Um, I would never necessarily say that British made is always the best way. Um, I I believe in it. And I think that we need more of it here in the UK. And the only way that we're going to have more of it is by people doing it and then supporting other people who are doing it, um, which is in part why we try and buy our materials from British manufacturers as well, because if we can help to create more demand, they can provide a wider range of materials. They can they can do more innovation uh, and perhaps become more competitive on, on a global scale. So, so, you know, that, that I guess, is, is my approach. Um, it, it, for us, it's also about 
sustainability. Um, if we're making the bags here, it makes sense not to be shipping them across the ocean and, and having all of these sort of travel miles added to the materials that we're using. Um, and to a degree, it's ethical, you know, ensuring that the people who are manufacturing those materials and those hardwares are, you know, paid well and uh, live in good conditions and work in good conditions. And that's something that's probably, um, or certainly 10 years ago, was easier to uh, determine here in the UK. On the flip side, you know, as I said earlier, the UK can't make everything and we, um, we, we don't necessarily have access to every type of, of manufacturing technology. And, you know, without being sort of rude, I think that probably uh, when the bottom fell out of British manufacturing in the sort of 80s and 90s, I think a lot of uh, factories ended up depending on a couple of big clients and it was much more difficult to run their businesses. And so they ended up playing it perhaps too safe and not investing as heavily in, in innovation in the same way that you might have seen overseas. So if you go over these nowadays, I mean, there are, there are incredible factories that are now, you know, um, you know, ethically produced, often, you know, powered by renewable energy. And, you know, they have materials being made on their doorstep as well. So I think from a sustainability standpoint, the really the context has changed in the last 10 years of, of what was happening then and what was happening now. Um, so there are advantages to everything, but at the end of the day, this is how we like to do it. And I think that there are people out there who, who, who like that and, and want to support local businesses. I suppose in some respects, it's also a question of scale. I mean, if you were making, selling 5 million bags a year, it would be con quite different making them in Glasgow. Absolutely. I mean, not least because, you know, in, in a business like, like ours, our time is probably the, the the most valuable thing. So, you know, that's that's where the cost in in the bag is is coming from primarily. Um, but you know, I think it, it, it's great because we're we're reinvesting in in local people, uh, in our local community, and I think that that feels good um, and is appreciated. Now, don't get me wrong. At the same time, I. You know, I think there are a lot of people out there who love British made, but I wouldn't say that most people, I don't think most people look for things on the basis that they're British made. They look for the right product, the product that they love or the thing that they want. And if it's British made, they think, great, I feel good about this purchase. Um, I don't think people are Googling British made backpacks, you know, or at least not many. Um so I think that we, we have a way to go there. And at the end of the day, you still have to create a fantastic product and it has to compete on a, on a global scale now with, with, the, inter, you know, with the internet. Um, everything is available to us. Um, you can't just lean on being British made, but British made brings a huge amount of benefits that I think you know, make, it, make everyone feel good. You did a very nice post on Instagram recently about... Um... Uh, sustainability and social responsibility, environmental aspects, which presented the whole idea of a, a smallish business factory making in Glasgow. Uh, 
well presented. It, uh, it really caught my eye. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of there are lots of angles. You know, I think that this topic you could go on forever and ever. But when we sort of moved into a bigger workshop in 2015, I knew a few things. I knew that I wanted to be doing it here in the UK. I knew that there weren't many people really, you know, working in that industry compared to to what it had been 20 years previous. And so I was really keen to try and encourage young people to want to work in manufacturing again. I think it's probably fair to say that if you ask most 16-year-olds what they want to do when they're older, they, they don't want to work in a factory. And I think that to some degree, factories have probably got a bad name. But what we tried to do is, is find a factory here in, in Glasgow that's very centrally located. So we're in the middle of the city. Uh, you know, we can walk to work, we can cycle to work, we're, we're surrounded by amenities and nice places to go for lunch and things like that. Um, but we also have a, a workshop that probably feels more like a, a design studio. So although we operate in in, in the way that a factory would, um, it, it, we try and create a nicer environment um, for staff. We make sure that people are, are salaried rather than uh, paid by piecework which is sort of when you get paid based on how many pieces you make um, and we try and create an environment that people want to work in and where people can take pride in what they make um, we are sort of known for making very high quality products and, and at the end of the day none of that is my i can i can't take any credit for that i have a fantastic team of people who are incredibly skilled at what they do um, and i think you know, encouraging more people like that to work in the manufacturing industry in the UK is an important thing. So there's a degree of social responsibility there, I guess, trying to do the right thing, um, even if it's uh, not the easiest thing. And I think that sort of that trickles down in terms of um, where we buy from and, and, and how we operate. We, we try and make products that last and last and last. And we try and make... Um, you know, we try and make good relationships with our customers. So we offer a lifetime guarantee on all of our products. Um, and that's because we, we set out with the intention of these things lasting for as long as possible. And we want to make sure that if anyone you know, buys from us and has a problem, that we'll look after them. Um, and I, th I think that's really important. It, you know, so someone told me, don't quote me on this as such, but it's sort of, helpful illustrative uh, statistic but um, someone once told me that about 80 percent of the carbon emissions of a product happens in the manufacturing stage so there's an enormous amount of responsibility on us manufacturing these things um, to, to make sure that they are you know as friendly as they can be to the environment we're making something new we're bringing something into the world and that thing is not going to go away anytime soon. So we want to make sure that it lasts for as long as possible so that the energy we put into making it is spread over as long a period as possible. Repairs help us to do that. And, you know, the, the beauty of the repair scheme is that we get product back and we see we begin to see patterns in where things are failing and how things go wrong. And because we work in quite a lean way and we don't hold a huge amount of stock, um, we're able to quite quickly update things and fix issues and design out problems. So every year that goes by, I think our products get better.
better and better and better. Um, and we design out more and more of these problems, um, which should, in theory, add to the longevity of the products that we make. How hard is it to find qualified people to work for you? It can be a challenge. I think we're very lucky in Glasgow that there are a couple of really amazing colleges here that do garment production courses. Um, and we have found that uh, they have a fantastic caliber of student. Um, and we often hire uh, people directly from those colleges. Um, so in a way, it's been good. I think what the, the downside of that, of course, as, as with, you know, as we were talking about earlier, is that they, they don't always have industry experience. And I think um, that's something that we are, are fine with. You know, um, we try and bring people in and we find generally that, that most people study uh, garment production or, or something similar. And they're generally working in the sort of clothing arena. They're making um, garments. Making a bag is actually quite different. Um, we use very different fabrics. They're very different weights. We use a lot of different uh, machinery to, to, to manufacture those primarily because we're dealing with thicker fabrics and sort of reinforcing stitches and things like that to make sure that the, the bags are durable. Um, and obviously it's a very functional product. Not that fashion isn't isn't uh, necessarily functional, but it's sort of not inherently uh, functional, it can just look nice. Um, we need to do something that that is sort of stylish and works and is strong and long lasting. So, and that requires a little bit of a learning curve anyway. So we find that by taking on students, We've developed a really, really good way of training people up, and um, and we find that generally, yeah, we can we can train people to to the level that they need to be at, um, and that works really well for us and gives us sort of people in the business who are young who can grow with the business. We, you know, we're we're very young, and I want people who who can really make a career here with us. As you were saying that, I was thinking, man. You guys should be making some clothes as well. Is that something that you've thought about at all? It certainly is. Uh, in between you, between you and me, don't <laughs> tell anyone. Um, yeah, we're actually looking at doing some clothing at the moment. So, for our tenth birthday um, in two thousand and twenty-one, we manufactured a, a bright orange uh, smock jacket. Um, really, as a bit of fun, it was something that we 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 don't normally do we're known for making bags and we thought let's just try this out and it was super well received uh, we sold out and and it was uh really fantastic and it, it added a really interesting new dimension to what we do so we've been thinking about that ever since and this year we're actually um to, trying to find a small sort of capsule collection of clothing um with a view to bring it out later this year but you know We'll see how that turns out. These things often have a way of, of taking a bit longer than you expect. The reason I, I, that came to mind was that you're putting so much effort into making the best possible bags. And I often see such a difference between clothes that are made to be durable and lasting and proper compared to the much sort of cheaper fashion offerings, which are basically made to make it past the till and doesn't matter what how long they last after that but sort of combining that experience of making really durable stuff 
I mean, that that is where the whole buy better, buy less, buy once movement comes from, isn't it? Exactly. Um, yeah, we we need more things that are made well. Um, uh, there are a lot of things out there in the world that are not really designed uh, to be around for very long. Um, and I think that's a problem, even if it's recyclable or, or compostable or whatever. You know, whatever you're doing, you are using energy and, and you're, you're, you know, using time to make something like that. And it seems crazy to me that it should be disposable. So I think the more things that we can create that are going to be around, it doesn't mean that you have to wear it forever, you know, but it can be passed on. It can be given to charity. It can be to be, can be given to someone else. Um, I, I think that's super important. The fact that uh, you mentioned that can be passed on because that's something which my mind really stopped on because if you're going to buy better buy less buy just one thing you're going to have to be sure that it's something you're going to want to use for a long time you really have to engage with it love it Uh, and i was thinking how do you know that when you're in the process of buying it it's like meeting a new partner Um, it might last a week it might last a lifetime but the fact that you can say well i've worn this jacket for two years now i'll give it to someone else no no harm done no hurt feelings absolutely i I think um you know we we find a lot of our customers end up you know passing passing their bags on to friends or kids or or, or whatever and and i love to see that um you know i think i think buying something that's going to last a long time you also have to think about how your life might change and how what you do might changes and um, obviously style changes so I think we've always tried to go with um, with sort of styling that feels relatively timeless, something that you could wear 10 years ago and you could wear today and it wouldn't feel out of place. It might not be the current thing in this very moment in the fashion world, um, but it, it at least feels, you know, like some sort of um, takes cues from, from classic design um, that just never really goes out of style. Um, and I think that's really important if it, if you if you don't want to wear it, you won't use it, and I think that's that's crucial. Um, we're also a little bit dubious about you know things like laptop sleeves. We always worry about because you know Apple bring out a new laptop every year, and it's always a different dimension from the year before. So if we're making a product to last, mm. you know what does a laptop sleeve need? You know what size does a laptop sleeve need to be in fifteen years? do we need a laptop sleeve in 15 years you know so i think there are some questions where you have to balance like what people want and need now and how that feature might adapt and might evolve or might be useful for something else in in years to come because the things we carry will change yeah i can never find a laptop sleeve large enough for my laptop because as an engineer i always have these huge ones so it's always in the main compartment of the backpack anyway exactly you mentioned that you're not sort of uh, in the fashion sphere, but you do like doing collaborations. Very much, very much. I think collaborations are fantastic. They sort of take you out of your comfort zone. They show you a new perspective. Um, and I think a good collaboration should allow both parties to do something that they couldn't do alone. Um, and I think that's probably like the, the, the way that we always view collaborative work. you see a lot of companies out there doing very light touch collaborations and, and there's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, we have done things like that before. Um, 
but I think the best collaborations are, are the ones that you really have to delve into. And we've we've been very, very lucky to get to collaborate with some fantastic companies and, and had some really interesting briefs to work with that have have allowed us to level up and have allowed them to do something that maybe they, they would never have considered. Um, a couple of interesting examples, perhaps. Um, we we did a, yeah. a collaboration with um, Jura Whiskey uh, a few years ago, and it was sort of the, a designer's ultimate brief. Uh, they came to me and said, look, we've got this amazing distillery on this amazing island that has 200 people on it just off, you know, off the coast of, of mainland Scotland. Um, and um, it's becoming harder and harder at first to talk about alcohol online, because at this time, sort of, they were making a lot of legislation about how you could talk about drinking, uh, understandably. So they were sort of going, look, we, we can't tell stories in the same way that we always have. Um, and, and we need a new way of telling a story. And we we're thinking that maybe you could design a bag for us that's inspired by the island. And then we can use the, that bag as a sort of way to talk about the distillery and the things that we do and the values that are important to us. But other than that, they, they, there was no brief other than that. So they took me out to Jura for, for a week um, and I did some research and we ended up creating a, a bag that every detail was really designed to allow them to tell this story. So um first off uh the bag was about 20 liters in size and it, and it was a very specific uh literage because when you when you create uh whiskey you pour it into a barrel and you put it into a warehouse and store it for 10 years or 12 years or 20 years and that's called the maturation process and during that time some of the whiskey evaporates out of the barrel and the amount that evaporates is called the angel's share. So you might put 200 litres into a barrel and you might only get 150 litres out. It, it depends on how long you leave it for. Um, so I took their most popular whiskey and I worked out during its maturation phase how much would evaporate as the angel's share. And the backpack was then a sort of physical representation of how much whiskey evaporates while it's maturing. And, and that was a really nice little way of just telling that story. Um, it was a roll top bag. And, and that was based on uh, back in the day when they used to bring barley into the distillery. It was in these big sort of roll top Hessian bags. And so we had a roll top on our backpack. Um, we had uh, ring, we had uh, zip pulls made from deer hide because the Isle of Jura is home to 200 people and 6,000 deer. So deer outnumber people wow. 30 to one. Um, and so we tried to reference that with the deer hide pullers. Um, we used copper rivets uh, to reflect the copper stills that the, the whiskey is distilled in. And we even went as far as we found a woman on the island who um, does, does knitting. She does a lot of dyeing her own uh, yarns to, to knit with. And she uh, taught us a method of harvesting lichen from rocks and turning this into a cold water dye. And depending on how long you leave uh, your fabric or your yarn in it for, it goes sort of through a, a spectrum of dark brown through to sort of a, a red and then back to sort of a tan color. So we ended up creating this color called crottle named after the, the dye. 
uh, named after the lichen, crottle lichen. And, and that uh, ended up becoming the color that we made the bag in. So um, the, the color of the bag was made by the island. Um, and when we took it back to the island to take photos, it just felt right at home because uh, it was a very natural color. So, you know, that was a really wonderful collab for us because it gave us this sort of creative license to to do something interesting. It allowed us to tell stories, which we love to do. Um, and it gave them a, a really effective way to talk about all of these great things that they were doing at the distillery um, without really talking about alcohol, uh, which which was great. I have to say the the dying bit was my favorite bit there. <laughs> really, fun, so good. really fun, really um, fun. But yeah, we've we've done all sorts over the years. We've collaborated with Harris Tweed, and and they're an amazing, amazing company. I mean, you know, fabric that is made in people's houses on the island, powered by pedals. You know, they're literally like pedaling a bicycle. Uh, and I love that continuity. We were making mm. bike messengers, and I love the idea that you know it sort of started and ended on a bike, uh, which is which is really fun. Uh, most recently, we we. Um, uh, did a collaboration last year with a, a, a brand called Cariology, who are a huge uh, bag review website uh, in, in the US and, and Australia. And with them, we designed our own tartan based on uh, John Muir. Um, so we took the Dunbar tartan, which is where John, John Muir was, was born, and we developed it and changed it with some brand colors and things like that um, and and put it onto this bag that was was completely different. I mean, for us, that collaboration was sort of uh, completely the opposite direction from Jura. We used it as an opportunity to see what we were capable of. So, you know, Cariology are, are based in the US. And so we thought, well, we might try experimenting with some fabrics that are not made here in the UK, maybe some synthetic fabrics and things that are a bit different from what we would normally use. Try something new, you know, try something that we haven't done um, before and we blended those sort of very modern technical fabrics with very traditional scottish fabrics like tartans um to, to create a bag that was was quite unique and um was also a huge amount of work because we designed this bag from the ground up it was technically quite complex because it had a a sling bag that attached onto the onto the top of the main bag with magnets and so it was designed so that when you looked at the bag, it, it was meant to look sort of have have elements of a classic heritage backpack with a lid and straps. Um, and then it had this reveal where you could pull the sling off um, and, you know, you, you hadn't realized that the sling was there before. And then suddenly you've got these two bags that you can use for traveling and, and things like that. And so that was a real technical challenge for us. It, it, it We sort of said what what is the very limit of our capability here in our workshop, which is, you know, we're normally doing quite traditional types of manufacture using traditional materials. And sometimes you just need to break out of your comfort zone and try something that, you know, you don't know if you can do. And, and that is when things get exciting and terrifying. <laughs> so what did Cariology think of the bag? Um, well, I, I think they thought it was <laughs> quite nice. Uh, we sold out uh, in about, well, less than 24 hours. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we got a, a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of positive feedback from it, which was which was fantastic. And I think really, again, you know, what, what, what we tried to do everywhere along the way is tell stories about the things that we were using and the materials we were using. And, and 
I think that was something, it's sort of a peek behind the curtain. Um, the audience from Cariology are people who love bags. They, they geek out about them. They obsess about them. They know everything about them. And so to give them this sort of peek behind the curtain in how it was made and how we chose these fabrics and how these fabrics were made and, and the fact that so many bits on this bag were completely custom or had never been done before um, really was just like, you know, the sort of bag geek's dream, I guess. Something you've been doing recently that really caught my eye. I mean, I was this is sort of stuff I obsess about. Uh, am I right in thinking that you've been taking a lot of bags that have come in, which are basically broken, and then remaking them? Yeah, so this is sort of, we call it our buyback scheme. And we realise, you know, that, that, that there will be bags out there that people don't use and don't want, and maybe they don't want to give it to a charity shop or they don't know who to pass it to. And the last thing we want to happen is for our bags to end up in, in landfill. You know, there's always an opportunity to give something a new life. So we started this scheme called the buyback scheme, where if you've got an old bag that you don't want, you can send it back to us and we'll give you a, a big discount on a new product from us. We then take those, those old products and, and we have no limit as to what you can send us back. As long as it's, as long as it's one of our products, it can be completely destroyed it can be falling apart, you know, it can be covered in stains and dirt, whatever. We will take anything. Um, and what we do is we then take those products and either if they're in good condition, we'll restore them to their former glory, fix any issues that, that, that might be, you know, lurking on the horizon. And then we, we essentially resell that as a, as a sort of secondhand product. But then we also do something called remade, which we have a bit more fun with. And, and this is where we'll take a bag where perhaps the front panel is in great condition, but the rest of it is, is, uh, is not in, in good condition. We'll take the salvageable parts from that bag and then we'll, we'll use those fabrics to, to make something new. Um, and, I, and I think that's really fun because what we get is, I mean, for example, we did a bag uh, in the last drop where we had a few different types of wax canvas come back to us from on different bags through through uh, through the ages, and they'd all been used, so they were all like really creased and really shiny, and that that beautiful look that you get with an old barber jacket. It all in varying state, varying stages, but they were all olive fabrics, and so we cut them up and turned them into a patchwork of different sort of ages of wax canvas, and turned that into a bag. And the finished effect was just so cool because you sort of saw that, that you know, it was totally unique, totally, a one-off piece. There's no, nothing else like it. Um, but also it just gives you this amazing insight into how the canvas ages and it'll continue to adapt and build character over the years. And I think that was just a really fun thing to do. And we also use Remade as an opportunity to do sort of fun projects. So when we were designing this tartan with um, Cariology, we were down at the mill um, uh, producing the tartan and they had these huge books of like uh, sort of A4 size tar uh, tartan samples that were out of date. They were sort of designs that they didn't make anymore or, or things that they weren't looking to offer. And I said, oh, you know, well, you're just going to throw those away. Um, why don't you give them to us and we'll do something with them? And then at Christmas, we, we took those and we turned them into Christmas stockings. So a really silly product. Um, but, you know, we're getting into the Christmas spirit and we made these wax canvas Christmas stockings with a sort of tartan cuff on them. 
Um, and it was just a great way to use <laughs> use materials that were going to get wasted, um, use things that you know would have ended up in the bin. And I think our remade project is a great way to salvage those things. Even even in the workshop, you know, odds and ends, you know, offcuts from rolls of fabric or weird lengths of webbing that we can't use for anything else. Um, we get buckles that maybe have uh, got minor you know, um, manufacturing defects where they might have a little blemish on them or something. Perfectly usable buckles. They're made of stainless steel. They're still never going to break. They just don't look quite right. And it seems a shame to waste them. So we just try and use this stuff up. And in doing so, we, we try and cre create as little waste um, in our workshop as, as possible. So maybe an interesting thing is that I always thought that we would make stuff here in the UK and it was bought by British people who wanted to buy stuff that's made here in the UK. And what I found over the years is actually, particularly made in Scotland specifically, has much bigger appeal overseas than it does here in the UK. And so we've ended up with with a, a huge international audience. Um, you know, our second biggest market um, is the USA. Um, and we sell now to about 65 different countries worldwide. Um, and I think that really took me by surprise. It was something I never really expected. Um, but amazing. And, and it's amazing to see our bags all over the world like that. Um, that never gets old. You know, we see more and more of them in, in Glasgow walking around and, and things like that. But I think I've never seen one in the wild overseas. And I think if I if I could do that one day, I would be really happy. Sort of thinking back now to the 12 year older, uh, younger Alec, uh, would you have talked yourself out of starting a company back then? With the experience you've gained over the past 12 years? Or has it been brilliant? It's been brilliant. I mean, I think, you know, I think I would go back to, to um, you know, whatever, 21-year-old Alec and say, hey, you know, buddy, this is not going to be as easy as you think. Um, it, it has been fraught with challenges. It's been, it's been difficult. Um, as anyone who runs a small business knows, um, you know, the sun isn't always shining and, uh, and there can be some really difficult challenges to, to overcome. But I think fundamentally it has been worth it. It's worth doing. I feel like I'm very lucky to do a job that I'm very proud to do and I'm, I, I enjoy a, a lot. And I think, um, you know, we don't always get it right, but we always try and do our best. Um, and I guess that that's all you can do. Um, we are still learning, you know, and it, we're still on that journey and it is still a steep learning curve even now. Um, there's always something new to work out. There's always a new problem to solve. Um, there's always a new uh, fire to fight. But yeah, I think it, it has been hugely worthwhile and has given me so many opportunities um, just to meet amazing people um, in manufacturing and in outdoors. And it's given me um, a huge impetus to see Scotland uh, and what an amazing country it is. So yeah, I would do it again in a heartbeat, I might change a few things <laughs> along the way. <laughs> well, I mean, 
if you were 21 then i mean you did have that sort of youthful enthusiasm and uh certainty that you couldn't fail i suppose absolutely i mean i don't i don't think i even really thought about it at the time i didn't feel like i was really starting a business as such it was it was quite casual and 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 um, certainly the first few years were quite slow um i think you know in in a way i'm always thinking oh i'd love to start another business because I've learned so much with track that I think if I, I did something again, um, you know, it might might be a little bit quicker to 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 gain momentum. Um, and I would love to apply some of the things, you know, and, and make this sort of clean, shiny new thing that doesn't have any sort of issues from the past that we, that we have to deal with. That would be fun. Um, but, you know, it's it's not something that I want to do right now. I think there's so many opportunities to do new things with track um, and I'm excited to, to start looking at new new product designs this year, to look at clothing um, and to just continue developing uh, a wonderful team of people um, here in Glasgow. Is there anything special coming up in the near future that you'd like to mention? Well, at the minute, we're, we're sort of going through, so every couple of years, we, we tend to do what we call design updates, which is where we look at the whole range and we go, what's working, what's not? Um, you know, because we manufacture it here and we have a relatively small team, there is a limit limit to our capacity and a limit to what we can make. And um, unlike, you know, the, the bigger brands of this world, we can't, we can't keep a, a huge range of products in stock all the time. So we have to keep a relatively tight range. And what we're always doing is, is looking at that range and going, what's working, what's not working? Are there elements of designs that we need to tweak and change? Do we need to just update something to make it better? So we're going through that process at the moment. And as a result, probably you know 80% of the range is going to be uh, looked at and updated at some point this year. Some of those changes might be very, very minor. You know, it might be one, one tiny detail, detail or, or it might be something you never even notice. It might be just in the way that we manufacture it. Um, but there are some things that, that will be radically changed and there will be new products brought in along the way. And I'm always excited by that because understanding what people need from different sort of classes of product is fascinating. Understanding how different people use those products and how they use the pockets um we we always try and make sure that we sort of we we never go overboard we try and have just the perfect amount of pockets on something so we try not to have too many and not too few it needs to feel that sort of goldilocks number of being just right um and that often takes us a long time to get to because it you know we have to talk to people we have to understand what people are doing we have to make a lot of prototypes but it's a really exciting journey um to do things like that it sounded to me like you were almost as happy repairing someone's bag as selling them a new one. Absolutely. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I think people want to feel like the companies they're buying from are real people. And, I, you know, every company has policies and every, every com company has, has things. But I think for us, you know, customer service is so important. And by offering repairs we also create a, a sort of opportunity to to maintain relationships with our customers so people keep in touch and we understand what people do with their bags and how they use them and we get those bags back and we see their sort of battle scars and the wounds they've they've d 
developed over the way, uh, over the years. And we, we see the character and, you know, I just, I love to see that. And um, yeah, I, you know, I really, I really do want our customers to feel like we're, you know, buying a bag from us is not a, a single transaction. It's sort of the beginning of a, a longer relationship. Um, and I think that's how business should be done. One final question, Alec. Given how the bike messengers of Glasgow were giving you advice when you were starting out on how to make messenger bags, are they are they all using your bags today? Good question. Uh, no, is the short <laughs> answer. I, I would suspect that most of them now use those rather fetching teal Deliveroo bags um, because it seems that the the sort of bike oh, careers yeah. have all. I mean, actually, in a good way, had a real resurgence through things like Uber Eats and and Deliveroo. Um, there are certainly a lot more bikes on the road now doing deliveries than there ever have been. And that can only be a good thing. Um, but sadly, it's not quite the same style as it used to be. Um, and we still offer, in fact, one of those early designs that we sold in, in the Barris market uh, in 2010 called the Wheelug. It was a messenger bag. And uh, we still sell a version of that today, although it's been drastically altered over the years. And that is a bag very, very much designed for cycling um, and and still gets gets great reviews um, from cyclists. But I think couriers nowadays need much bigger, uh, bigger bags than we make, unfortunately. Mm. And those initial 200, they're all long gone. Actually not. Uh, you would be surprised. <laughs> so, I mean, slightly <laughs> embarrassingly in a way. I kind of wish they would die. But um, yeah. Uh, the, the very first bag that um, I ever made um, from the yellow plumber's phone number, um, that I ended up uh, buying back from the customer uh, about five years ago. Uh, and it was still in absolute, you know, absolutely good condition, still working, still being used on a daily basis. Um, and actually, there are a lot of there are a lot of those original products that are still out there. Um, most often in Glasgow and occasionally I'll see them. Um, but yeah, I'm always quite surprised that they're still working. They might not have been pretty, but they, they did do the job. What more can you ask? Okay, Alec, unless you have anything you'd like to mention just in closing, I think we're, we're good. No, I mean, just thank you for the opportunity, Nick. I think this has been um, such a treat, uh, especially because you were one of our very early customers. Um, and, and it's just so lovely that you still use your bag today. Um, that makes it e even better for me. We're very much a track family. My mum and dad use theirs daily. My brother-in-law uses his and I use mine. Wonderful. Well, you know that we'll always look after you, Nick. Bye-bye <laughs> for now, Alec. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.